and welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. And this week, Angela has chosen the topic. I have indeed. It's a story, John, about a woman who I find really fascinating. Her name's Nancy Wake. Have you heard of her? I have now. No, we did actually mention her, didn't we? She got a mention in our MI9 episode, I think. she help on one of the escape lines to Spain in the war or something? Yes, she did. She did. I'm always fascinated, John, by extraordinary people doing extraordinary things in wartime, right? So sort of if you're under occupation or whatever. Because I, yeah. I think most people obviously just have to do as they're told, maybe collaborate if they have to. We all think we wouldn't do that, but you've got yeah. to do whatever to survive and, you know, get through. There's necessity. But there's always these people who do things that are so extraordinary and I, I just don't know, I don't think I'd be that person in a war. My fight or flight response to stress is more sort of sit and worry. Um, <laughs> yeah. I always think of that, you know, that Woody Allen quote, the, in the event of war, I'm a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone thinks they'd be the hero, not the collaborator. But you get these individual characters who are, you know, ordinary people thrown into extraordinary situations mm. and they reveal their greatness. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think Nancy Wake is one of those. He definitely is. So back in 2019, I was asked to contribute to this Radio 4 programme called Unsung Heroines. And at that time, I'd just read an article about her. I'd never heard of her before. So she was fresh in my mind. So I nominated her. And I thought, right, I'll read more about her at some point. And then I bought the book and never read it. And then um, I came across it recently and thought, oh, that'd be a really good We Are History episode. Well, we'll see about that. Well, we will see. (laughs) The book I read was called Nancy Wake, and it's by Russell Braddon. And the first edition of the book was published in 1958. And he did interviews with Nancy and all the survivors from the story, really. It's been updated, revised since. And there are other biographies. And she did write an autobiography as well called White Mouse. White Mouse was her code name or something, yes, was it? Yes, it was, yeah. yes. So, as usual, don't have time to cover a fraction of Nancy's incredible life. So, yeah, please do read more. Uh, we'll look at how it all started and some highlights of her time fighting Nazis, which has got to be a good thing, Andrew, isn't it? I think generally <laughs> fighting Nazis is to be applauded, Yes. <laughs> So Nancy was born in Wellington in New Zealand in 1912, but she grew up in Sydney in Australia. And there's not much said about her home life, except that she wasn't very happy. I think her parents weren't happy. Uh, So as soon as she was old enough, she left Australia for New York and then went to London where she trained as a journalist. Which is not easy back in those days no. to, to sort of be that uh, confident enough to Especially sort of... Especially in her forward, early 20s as a woman. Forging a career, yeah. yeah. She embarked on a sort of round-the-world trip, didn't she, funded by her journalism. That's right, yeah. She sort of would write for different publications and stay in different places. And then in 1923, uh, she gets herself a little flat in Paris. And in a bar, she meets this wealthy businessman called Henry Fiocca, uh, who she later marries. And they settle together in a flat in Marseille. French, was he? He was French. Yes. Henri Fiocca. Henri Fiocca. Fiocca doesn't sound very French, does it? But he was French. And in 1939, um, Nancy's popped over to London for something called the Tring Treatment. So apparently in the 30s, it was really fashionable uh, for women in Europe to go to Tring for a slimming treatment. <laughs> Okay. Go to Tring to get starved for a bit. Okay. So she'd gone over for that, but there was a waiting list. So she was waiting at the Strand Palace Hotel in London uh, till she could get her place for slimming. And she read in a newspaper that war was coming, was pretty much inevitable. So at that point, she thinks, well, we're all going to starve if that happens. So this okay. feels a bit unnecessary now. <laughs> so the she Nuremberg starts, treatment. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. So she starts preparing to go back to France. But in the meantime, war breaks out. So she realises that Henri will probably be called up uh, back home in France. So she decides to offer her services to the British. 
as she is at that time a British subject. Yes, as an Australian. So they suggest that she could go and work in a naffy, which is right. a sort of recreational place, you know, places to eat and yeah. stuff for servicemen and women. And she thought that idea was a bit, well, naffy. Oh, Angela. Sorry, can, <laughs> Please can, hand in your broadcast. I'm sorry. Class. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> so instead she decides to join the thousands of people trying to get back to France. Um, mm. She eventually talks her way onto a crossing, despite everyone warning her that an Australian heading into France at that moment might not be the best idea. Yes, you would have thought not the best place to aim for no, in uh, no. 1939. I suppose but her husband's there. Yeah, and, you know. yeah. So she goes home to her husband and they are just enjoying life while waiting for Henri to be called up. Yeah, she wants to do a bit, so she asks him to get her driving lessons so she could drive an ambulance. Good. This was quite a thing um, for well-to-do women who wanted to do their bit. Oh, so they would get ambulance? their husbands to buy them an ambulance and learn yeah. to drive it, um, these private ones. Um, this was sort of during the phony war yeah. days, you know. Yeah. So, they, you know, it was a bit of excitement in their lives, I suppose. She was driving this ambulance. Well, it was actually... It served as a bus because all the buses had been sent to the front to be ambulances. Replacement bus service. Um, yeah, quite. <laughs> so, yeah. Nancy also sent food parcels to a poor family that she adopted, which was also quite a fashionable thing for wealthy women in France to do at that time. Yeah, and Henri was eventually called up, wasn't he? And yeah. um, Nancy moved north to the Rhine to ferry refugees about. I'm sure she didn't go, let's just ferry them about. But, that, but um, you know, that was, she was helping people. And then things started to get real when... Belgium fell in May 1940, followed by Paris in June. Yes, and then France fell, and eventually, a few weeks later, Henri and Nancy both returned to Marseille. Um, half of France is now occupied by the Nazis, the other half, the south, where they lived, had promised its allegiance to the Fuhrer. Yes, you probably know about this, listeners, but the southern yeah. part of France was now governed from Vichy, and the government collaborated with the Germans and were hostile to the British. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and its police force would sort of impose this collaborationist policy on the people. Uh, they were known as the Milice, and they were supervised unofficially and sort of discreetly by the Gestapo. Yes, and rationing shortages and black marketeering are now rife. But Nancy and Henri are fairly wealthy and stock up on tinned foods and distribute it in the community. They do. They do their bit. Uh, Nancy gets quite into black marketeering, actually. She, she sort of enjoys it. Henry teaches her to swear properly in French. So she goes down and haggles with the black market. Oh, merde no. <laughs> So in October, Nancy was in a bar in Marseille and she gets talking to this man in a bar who's from Newcastle and he tells her he's a British officer being interned in Fort Saint-Jean, which they actually call the fortress, so we'll just call okay. it that. They're being interned, these British officers, about 200 of them, but they're able to go on parole, they're able to move around the city, but they're being watched but they've you know, they're in pretty poor conditions no money little food so she arranges to meet him the next day to give him some cigarettes and food and a little radio so that they can listen to the bbc in the fortress fantastic massive you and yours fans they were yeah <laughs> that's right yeah. um so this is basically how she casually starts her journey as an enemy of hitler's third reich yeah. nancy began feeding four or five of them every day at her flat providing a place for them to plan and Henri obviously worried about her activities because mm. despite having French ID, she was a British subject, technically an enemy and vulnerable to capture. Yes, right. Uh, one day there was a Scotsman, a Captain Ian Garrow, came from the fortress. He was a charming and quite cunning man. You might remember him also from our MI9 episode. Um, he had set up quite a famous escape line that came to be known as the Pat O'Leary line, oh, yes, which we that. talked about. Yeah. 
which helped uh, prisoners of war get from France into Spain, Spain into Gibraltar, and Gibraltar back to England. Garrow did escape the fortress and went into hiding. That's when he asked Nancy if she was prepared to channel her hospitality into these escape activities and run messages to other towns like Cannes and Toulon. Yep, and she didn't hesitate to agree. And then while she was delivering one of these packages to Toulon, uh, she told her contact there that she also had a chalet in Navash, which was in the Alps. Right. Uh, she told the contact where the keys were kept and said he could use it for men that were escaping to shelter in as wow. a safe house. So she's now an active part of the French resistance. And of course, because of the age I am, like many of you listening, I'm just picturing Michelle from Allo Allo right now. Michelle says this only once. No, John. No. <laughs> so, I cannot believe that's our impression. <laughs> uh, the history of these heroic people in French it's resistance. Funny, and all we think of is, oh, there's a full of Madonna with a big boobie. Big boobie. It's I know, like, terrible, but it's sake. funny because I remember watching Allo Allo as a kid. I didn't. Yeah get the context of it at all because I was a child and it's really interesting you know when you get older and go oh right that's what was happening anyway in October 1941 Garrow was arrested and he was sentenced to 10 years at a camp in Mozac and that's when um, Pat O'Leary took over the escape line he was actually a Belgian called Albert Guris but even her closest friends didn't know about this double life. No, she just basically had to quite ostentatiously live the life of a normal, rich French housewife. You know, it must be quite exhausting. It reminds me a bit of Agent Sonia, yeah, you know, yeah. having to just look like a normal wife, a mother, although she wasn't a mother, Nancy, but, you know, just yeah. sort of getting on with it while yeah, every was... other waking hour she's helping people French escape distance. over the Pyrenees. And there was, in fact, there was a Vichy officer who lived in the flat opposite theirs, so in the end, Nancy rented another flat for Pat O'Leary to base his operations in. And the estate agents in town knew her, so she had to pretend to be having an affair. Um, French. I mean, they were, yeah. I mean, it's completely normal. Exactly. Yeah. No one better denied it, really. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, we'll help you find a flat for your <laughs> lover. That's what we do. That's our uh, main, we are French. main source of income. <laughs> <laughs> so she works the line for quite a long time. She's hiding people in her chalet, running messages, coordinating information and so on. Um, she has several run-ins. She has one run-in on a train with a Gestapo agent, but she just ends up flirting with him. And by the end of it, he's carrying her suitcase of black market meat across the border for her. Wow. So, you know, she's... Um, yeah, that's quite She's quite, quite, quite wily. Yeah. quite tough flirting with a Gestapo officer. It's not it's like, oh, you're so handsome. Yeah. They no. always have a scar and a big monocle. I mean, you Yeah, know. they all look like hair <laughs> flick. Yes, that's right. That's just reminded me, we had a German teacher at school, yeah. uh, like a, a sort of language assistant, a young guy, German guy came to help us and he had a mullet, so he called him haircut. Good. Anyway, um, so the early Gestapo, days of comedy. Yes, the Gestapo are after her for her part in these escapes and uh, that's when they've given her the code name White Mouse. They're tapping her phones, they're reading her mail, they're right. onto her. So in 1942, the Wehrmacht entered Vichy, France mm -hmm. and with them more Gestapo officers... So Henri tells her she has to go back to England. It's too dangerous for her to stay and that he will join her at a later date. Yeah. And um, at first she resisted, but then there was an agent who worked on the Pataleri network who betrayed them. You might remember that from yes. her MI9 episode. And she decided, yeah, at that time, it, she should probably plan her escape. It actually took her seven attempts to cross the border to Spain. I mean, she was arrested yeah. in Toulouse. She was beaten, interrogated, but she never spoke out about the resistance or escape lines. No, they accused her of being a prostitute. They got a police officer to falsely testify that he recognised her as a prostitute working in the area. They tried lots of things to detain her. But eventually, Pat O'Leary found out she was being held and he went there posing as an officer of the police, the Vichy secret police. Yes. 
and he said that she was his mistress. And so that's why she was trying to conceal her identity. So her husband didn't find out. And um, and they bought that and let her go. That's so funny. In the end, the yeah. Turns <laughs> out it was uh, someone called Roger who'd been helping the line, who'd been a trusted ally of O'Leary's, was actually a Gestapo agent, Gestapo agent 47. And that's why her escape attempts kept getting thwarted. So she eventually crossed the Pyrenees into Spain and her journey onward involved hiding in a coal truck, crossing the forbidden zones, patrolled by dogs and all the while having the shits from some black market lamb she'd eaten lovely. Yeah, it's uh, quite a journey. The group she was with did a 47-hour trek uh, and when an American with them collapsed and said he couldn't go on, Nancy slapped him till he did. That's yes. the only way to treat these Americans. Absolutely. <laughs> Bloody men. Posh honestly. women. <laughs> Posh women. <laughs> <laughs> So the consul in Spain had promised to send a car for them when they arrived in Barcelona. Because uh, Spain is technically neutral, of course, but is just full yes. of German spies. Uh, so when they arrived, there was no car. They all just slept in a haystack to wait, hiding on this farm. Yeah. But unfortunately, the farm was raided by the Spanish police who were looking for black market food just by coincidence. Oh, I see. So they were rounded up and marched to the nearest town. And all the way, they were singing dirty songs in French and English. They thought they were safe. They thought the consul was going to come and get them right. and it would all be fine. Uh, but it turned out there was a three-day local festival on and no one was working. <laughs> okay. Which does sound pretty Spanish. Right. <laughs> and so on the third night, she was taken out of her cell and questioned she would only say her fake name, Nancy Farmer, and Americano, mm. which I guess means American. Angela, my coffee, Spanish isn't great. Yes. <laughs> can, can I have a coffee, please? Uh, she thought they were going to shoot her, uh, but realised when they bothered to get an interpreter in that they probably wouldn't have bothered if they were going to murder her. So no, that was quite. reassuring. So then she employs a new tactic. And this is a tactic she employs quite a lot. Um, she becomes arrogant and aggressive. That like properly British sense of entitlement, you know, speaking loudly in English right. to people, being rude to everyone. She thought by being that a pain, by being arrogant, a bit people just would want rid of her, and it right. it worked over and over again. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, um, I remember I was about when I was about fourteen, we went on a family trip to India. My dad had been there in the war, and there was this guy in front of us, this army officer, and this Indian customs man was shouting and fussing and sort of moving us about. And then eventually this man said, don't shout at us, we're British. Mm. And the guy actually changed his attitude. Oh, it's like, this is the 70s, but it was like post-colonial sort of attitudes, oh, you know, God. shout at us, we're British. It's like, oh my God. Anyway, they were eventually released and she ended up on a convoy of ships heading to Britain from Gibraltar. Dangerous crossing during time of sea warfare, of course. Uh, it was a 10-day voyage with constant alarms, attacks from the air. She was, she was exhausted. But by this point in her travels, Feeling pretty invincible. Yeah, she's I come think. through a lot yeah. and she's on her way yeah. to England. She arrives at immigration in England with no passport because her papers have been left at the prison she was in in Toulouse. Yeah. Uh, but she managed to get an officer that she'd been speaking to on the ship to send a telegram to our friend Ian Garrow, who by this time had escaped the prison at Mozac and was working at the War Office in London. And while waiting for this uh, missive to take effect, she just made herself as odious and unpleasant as she could to all the officials keeping her in custody. Yeah, um, more proof, I suppose, of being British than any passport would have given her. <laughs> um, and like I say, she did it so they'd leave her alone, which they did. Eventually the war office sent someone and they couldn't wait to see her get in a train and go to London. And is that where she quietly sat out the rest of the war, Angela? Not exactly, John, no. Um, let's take a short break there because I know you're taking delivery of some black market meat and we'll come back in a moment.
Welcome back to We Are History, where today we are talking about Nancy Wake. Yes, we are. Nancy's back in London. She's taken it easy after spending a couple of years as the White Mouse, helping prisoners of war escape occupied France over the Pyrenees into Spain and on to England. Um, she rested for a few days after her travels, but then she sort of realised that Henri, her good, husband, Henri, um, <laughs> he's not going to be able to escape to join her in England. That was a pipe dream. Um, so she decides she wants to get back to France and she wants to get back to France as a saboteur to be part of the movement. She went to the Free France HQ in London, but at the time there was a lot of antipathy between Churchill and de Gaulle. So they assumed she had been sent as a spy from the war office. Yeah, so they sort of turned her away. Um, and they weren't completely paranoid to do that. Those spies were there from uh, the war office in, in yeah. de Gaulle's Free France. Um, and we know that because the fact that she'd offered her services to them got back to the war office, okay. um, <laughs> who then um, approached her. She hadn't wanted to volunteer for MI9. Apparently there was an executive there that she didn't like, but it was suggested to her that she join Buckmaster's group. Oh, that's the special operations executive, isn't it? The yeah. group set up by Churchill to perform acts of sabotage in occupied areas. Uh, the head of its French section was Colonel Maurice Buckmaster. Yes, exactly. So she was sent for an interview with a Major Morel who really pissed her off by asking a lot of what she called bloody silly questions. Right. <laughs> like, um, why do you want to go to France? Do you think it's glamorous? Imagine having gone through what she'd been through for that two and a half years, escaping yeah. across Spain and, you know, all the while maintaining cover, never giving anything up and then being spoken to you like you're some silly airhead. She's lucky she didn't punch him, really. Eventually, Buckmaster himself requested that she be enlisted, yeah. uh, which she did under her maiden name of Nancy Wake. She did. She signed up for the first aid nursing yeomanry, and we are far too mature here, John, to make any comment about that acronym. Oh, I see. Yeah, she was a fanny. Um, it was created in 1907 to allow wealthier women to serve their country in congenial company. So it's sort of a, a nursing organisation for nice ladies. Yes. Uh, but by 1943, they had nothing to do with nursing at all. They were training girls to be dropped into Nazi-occupied Europe as saboteurs, a unit ideal for our Nancy Wake. So Nancy gets to a training establishment known as the Madhouse. Yes, brilliant. Her conducting officer there, he was a really interesting guy, actually, and I know I say this all the time, but we should probably do an episode on him, but I don't know how much there is out there about him. His name was Dennis Rake. Yep. And it's not explicit in this book I read that was written in 1958, um, but he was definitely gay. I've, I've read things about him since. Um, the only things in the book that suggest that is there's lots of references to him being theatrical and calling everyone ducky. Okay. Um, but him and Nancy had a really close friendship, and I think he's a really interesting person. She had to do obstacle courses, yeah. cross fake minefields, or a pool of sulfuric acid, which sounds a bit dangerous. Yeah, I don't think that's what was in it. <laughs> okay. Find hidden documents in rooms, all sorts of physical challenges they set up for that's her. That's it. And this is the first place she went to. And then the final test there was an interview with a psychiatrist from New Zealand. And while she was waiting to go in, I think she'd already decided she wasn't going to like this bit. Yeah. And while she was waiting to go in, the girl who went in before her came out and told her about the block. Right, like a Rorschach test. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. So when she went in, the psychiatrist asked her lots of things that she just felt had no relation to this subversive work she was going to be doing. So she lied, said, you know, her parents and her home life were all happy and everything. And then came out the blots. You know what we're right. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, for every single one, when asked what she saw, she responded, 
blot. Okay. <laughs> and the psychiatrist said, well, surely you can see something. To which she replied, yes, it looks like someone's thrown a bottle of ink or something. That's good for which her. I just met. I love her for that. Yeah. He did word association games with her and yeah. asked her to play with blocks and she found it all a bit silly. Yeah. So she said to him, don't you think you'd be more used fighting the Japanese in the Pacific than mucking around with all these ridiculous blots and blocks over here? Because if you don't, I do. Right. Oof, back of the net. Uh, but despite that, or maybe because of that, his report said she was good training material. Okay. So she got sent to a training school in Scotland. Uh, well, she had to leave the first one she went to because her friend Rake had a row with another girl there and she refused to be a witness. So she swore at an officer with what the book referred to as an army word. Mm, Don't know guess what, that, what might that might be. be maybe. Mm, no. <laughs> Maybe um, not. <laughs> um, yes, eventually Gareth spoke up for her, explained yeah. she could be volatile, but was passionate and courageous. And she was allowed to train at a different place. So she spent six weeks at Inveria Bay. Yes. And the only part of the training she didn't enjoy, really, was the uh, the PT, which I feel that. Um, <laughs> but it started at dawn, right? So as the only woman among the recruits there, she just did my old P evading trick of women's problems and no one was going to argue with that. Um, so she just kept refusing to do PT until eventually they agreed to change the time to 9am. I think I love her. <laughs> She's brilliant. Yes. Now, if this was a film, this is the bit, John, where there would be a training montage. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We need a yeah. montage. I'm looking out for a montage. Do you remember that bit in <laughs> Team America World Police? Yeah. Uh, well, that's yes. where it would be right now. Yes. Ima just imagine in your head the Eye of the Tigers playing people. Yeah, she's running up the steps of the building and wherever it is. <laughs> she learned about explosions and detonators, dismantling and reassembling Bren guns, firing Sten guns, radio transmitters, Morse code, all that stuff. Yeah. She wasn't so keen on the unarmed combat and silent killing part of the course. She felt that was a bit dirty and violent um, but she did know that she would do it if she had to if she was stood between killing a Nazi in a concentration camp yes. then she's going to do it she wasn't great at the physical stuff um, for example there's a story in there how she found it quite hard to throw a grenade over arm <laughs> and she sort of avoided practicing it because she didn't like it and they were doing a training exercise in trench warfare and the idea was that the recruits were in a trench right. and they would take it in turns to run up take a pin out of a grenade and then get back in the trench before it exploded and on her turn, she ran up and she had the grenade in her hand. She said to the instructor, what do I have to do again? So he sarcastically said, pull the pin, throw it in the trench and run. So because she didn't like being spoken to like that, she just kept a deadpan face, pretended that she believed him and went to throw the grenade in the trench. <laughs> so the whole class just legging it for cover while she's pissing herself laughing. Oh my God. They were taught by a trawler man to row a boat to pick up parachutes and containers that might have landed in lakes and reservoirs. He'd never had an accident in 40 years of trawlering, but Nancy managed to capsize him on their first trip and they had to swim to shore. Good work, yeah. Nancy. She laughed all these things off. She was having a go. That was the most important thing. And she thought, well, at least I give the others a laugh. I'm good for morale. The you last know? part of this stage was a 36-hour trek. Then it was yeah. off to Manchester to learn how to parachute. Yeah. They jumped from a tower first and then from a plane. And finally, they had to jump from a balloon. She wasn't keen on any of that. I don't really blame her. But the rest of her group bribed her. They'd each give her a double whiskey if she jumped. Yes. So she pissed by the end of it, but she yeah. was jumping. Her last jump was at night um, and she couldn't see the ground until it was too late. Apparently it smacked her in the face and left her unconscious. And they all came running over, but they knew she was all right when she came round swearing like a docker. Um, the, <laughs> bit, the bit of her training she found most boring was the security stuff. She had to learn to identify German planes, regiments and ranks. 
Uh, but more exciting, they learned how to make explosives and things you could buy at chemists or hardware shops in France. So this sort of home cooking would keep the saboteurs operational if supplies from London didn't arrive for any reason. Because um, their role as saboteurs, obviously, would be to attack railways, rolling stock, machinery, comms, anything that London said they needed to do to disrupt the enemies. She really enjoyed her time in training and made good connections. When it was mm. all done... The recruits went to London and had a bit of a blowout together. Mm. Uh, they should probably have been more uh, security conscious than having dinner in a restaurant where the free French were known to frequent. Yeah, they weren't that careful on their night out. And they went to this place to dance and were doing parachute rolls on the floor, which is a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? Oh, what's that move you're doing? <laughs> oh, nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm just burying my parachute in the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they then all went back to Nancy's flat for some food and more drink. It's completely understandable that they'd want a big night out. They were young. They all knew that their futures were insecure. Uh, they knew they were going to France, but they could easily end up in Ravensbrück or Belsen. Yeah, exactly. Nancy was the first in her group actually to be posted. Buckmaster really trusted her because they knew she wouldn't talk under pressure. She didn't when she was arrested in Toulouse. She didn't when she was in prison in Spain. So she was the first to go. She had clothes made for her by a French tailor in London. And I love this detail. Her favourite Elizabeth Arden face cream was packed for her in French jars. Because obviously when she landed, she had to be French. Right. Um, and I just love this fact. She's happy to parachute into enemy territory to face God knows what, but she will not forego her favourite face cream. Excellent work. <laughs> um, so she's given a cover story and interrogated on it uh, over and over to make sure she knows every detail. She's given the code name LN and told to write it 50 times to make sure she remembers it. Yeah, finally, she's given her own personal code, right? Yeah. And they're told they could base a code on any quotation or verse that they chose so they wouldn't forget it. It was something they knew. And Nancy being Nancy, she just chooses this vulgar little poem saying, I know a verse the Germans won't suspect. So do you want to read it, John? Oh, yeah, you give me a <laughs> She stood right there in the moonlight fair and the moon shone through her nighty. It lit right on the nipple of her tit. And she said, good God almighty. <laughs> I just love that that was very matter-of-factly just added to the Special Operations Executive's list of official code keys. It's not exactly cold reach, is it? <laughs> not really. Um, she and another recruit, Hubert, were ready to go. They were searched for any giveaway items. Yes, a rogue London theatre ticket in a coat pocket or the wrong buttons could give you away. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Hubert was horrified to find later after he arrived they hadn't found a British regimental badge that was in his overcoat pocket. So, that, oh. I mean, that could have got him killed. Um, and you know how they say about Ginger Rogers, John, that she did everything Fred Astaire did but backwards and in heels? Yes. Well, Nancy wore heels for her drop into occupied what France. And I thought, what on earth? But, of course, she had to be dressed as a normal... French woman, she couldn't change when she got there. She couldn't abandon one set of shoes for another because they'd be found, you know. No. So she couldn't be wearing army boots or anything comfortable. So she was in smart civvies. She was wearing silk stockings. She had a camel hair overcoat. And they bound her ankles together for the parachute jump to support against the shock of landing in high heels. I mean, I'm not quite sure why she couldn't have had them in a bag or carry, I don't know, bare feet worse than I, I don't know. You see, but yeah. you see women walk into town in their trainers and then you know swap them over yeah. in a bag later on you think she could have just buried yeah. her trainers but oh. parachuting in high heels don't try it at home ladies and gentlemen <laughs> she had a handbag with plans and a million francs in cash revolvers in each trouser pocket a parachute on her back and a tin hat her code name for the trip was which she was ready yeah let's take a short break while john tries to remember his cover story and i tried to get out doing the rest of this podcast because of women's problems
Hello, this is We Are History Calling. London, are you there? Just setting the mood. Yes, we are back. It's 1944 and Nancy Wake, having worked two and a half years on an escape line, is now about to parachute behind enemy lines as a special operations executive saboteur. It's exciting. That is. Yeah, so she and Hubert are flown by a Texan pilot in a B-24 Liberator aircraft. They were sometimes known as a flying coffin. That's going to give you... Okay. They're taking you to France to parachute in. What plane are we going in? The flying coffin. Oh, great. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, it was called that because it was such a lumpy and hard plane to fly. Okay. And they hit bad weather on the way. They were flung about by anti-aircraft gunfire. And Nancy was so airsick that the dispatcher actually offered to take her back. But she refused. She was going to do this. And at 1.05 on the morning of February the 29th, it was a leap year, 1944... They arrived over the dropping point. So what's the plan then, Angela? Presumably you can't just arrive out of nowhere and start sabotaging. No, no. Nancy's had instructions when she lands to make contact with a local agent in the area called Morris Southgate, who will introduce them to the local Mackies. Okay, Mackies were rural bands of guerrilla resistance fighters in France and Belgium. Mackie meaning scrubland. Yeah, the individual fighters themselves are known as Mackie Sard. And to begin with, they were mostly sort of young working class men who'd escaped into the mountains and forests to escape the Vichy regime's compulsory work service that was implemented when they came in. And the Mackies then came to be made up of socialists, communists, anarchists and fighters, lots of different people who joined because they didn't want to fight for whatever reason with de Gaulle's free French forces. And also because they wanted to be on the ground fighting, whereas the free French were, I think, waiting for D-Day to get involved. There were Spanish Mackies, too, in the southwest. Um, they were groups that were veterans from the Spanish Civil War that now came to France to help with the resistance there. And it also turns out they aren't terribly well-trained or security conscious. Nancy couldn't believe it when she looked down from a plane at the jumping point and saw loads of people and bonfires and torches. She said, looks like Blackpool illuminations. Every German between here and Russia will know we're coming. Yeah, of course, she's been in London where they've been operating blackouts yeah. and been really, uh, you know, cautious. Anyway, Nancy jumps and she lands in a bush. She slightly misjudges it. And her parachute gets stuck in a tree. And I think we might have told this story on the podcast before because it's quite famous. Because when she landed, she heard Hubert talking to someone. And this guy comes over and introduces himself. He's one of the Mackies Mm -hmm. as Tardiva. He's a short, good-looking Frenchman. He was one of the leaders. And he spots Nancy in the tree and he says, I hope all the trees in France bear such beautiful fruit this year. To which she replies, don't give me that French shit. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> uh, yes, Nancy had arrived, uh, except her cover name was Madame André, as far as the Mackie were concerned. Though eventually she became known to everyone as Gertie. Yeah, that's what the Mackies called her. Um, I don't know how she remembered all the names that she had. She had. So many different names during this story. I've only got one extra name to remember, you know, like my married name, and I've Forget I've got that. <laughs> and there's a lot of other names people call you. Angela, oh, yeah. well, they're, they're, I, those I don't have to concern myself with, John, when they're behind <laughs> my back. There was no sign of Southgate, but there was a car waiting for her. She was horrified because she'd been told that under no circumstances should they use a car, just bicycles and walking. Cars were for Germans and they would draw suspicion. But she was told they all drove around in cars as the terrain was too difficult. And when she saw it, she understood the area wasn't called the Fortress of France for nothing. No. So they were taken by car to a host house above a radio shop. And Nancy and Hubert's mission was to meet the Mackies and sort of size them up. And then eventually a wireless operator would join them and they would cable back to London to advise whether these fighters 
were worth financing, whether London should be arming them and training them in preparation for when D-Day comes. It seemed there had been an ambush, which is why their contact hadn't turned up, and a lot of his group was arrested. Mm. The wireless operator they were waiting on had landed on the other side of this Gestapo situation, so he couldn't get to them either and may have been captured. Yeah, so they were going to have to make contact themselves with Gaspard, who is the person that they were supposed to be assessing. He commanded four local groups and several thousand men in the area. And after a few days, they did meet him. Uh, Nancy wasn't a fan. He was a bit of a bully and she felt he was a bluffer. He was just winging it. He didn't really have the skills to command an army. And he wasn't keen on her either. She overheard him telling his men that he wasn't interested in cooperating with London. He just wanted money and arms. And he knew she had money on her. So one of his men planned to seduce her and kill her. To which she responded, because she'd overheard this conversation, none of this scruffy lot are getting within miles of me. (laughs) And sure enough, when her seducer approached her that night, she put him in his place. I'd love to know how she did it, but she did. And there were no further attempts to seduce her. She was cool. (laughs) Gaspar sent her off to one of the groups he commanded, and they suggested she and Hubert should lie low till they had a wireless operator. So they spent a few days in a hotel. Um, she was getting frustrated with all this inaction. Yeah, she's gone off to this other group commanded by someone else and she's just, what are we doing here? And she was just idling one day by a cemetery, sitting on a wall, waiting for a wireless operator to arrive when she hears his voice behind her say, what are you doing there, ducky? Picking yourself a grave? And it was her old instructor from the madhouse, old Dennis Rake. He'd come to be her wireless operator. Yeah, so now they had contact in London, they were a source of power to the Marquis. They needed Nancy if they wanted money and arms because only she knew the codes to speak to London. Uh, At the arranged time, they sent a message to London. Yeah, and this is how it worked. So Nancy would send a coded message to London telling them what they needed and they would send the supplies via parachute. So in this message, she'd give her code name, LN, so they knew who it was. She would give the name of a fruit because she'd surveyed all the fields in the area Mm. for suitability for parachute drops and assigned each one the name of a fruit. So the name of the fruit would tell her which field it was being dropped in. She would also include a phrase that was to be the signal for when the airdrop was ready. So in her outgoing message, she might say something like the cow jumped over the moon as her phrase. So the whole message might go something like, Ellen to London, want boots, guns, money for 500 men at Strawberry. The cow jumped over the moon. And that gave London all the information they needed. Obviously, it was just done in Morse. And then when the parachute drop was due, the BBC would say the chosen phrase, the cow jumps over the moon, after news sessions on, on the radio. So she would have to listen to the radio constantly. There were five news sessions a day and the drop would only happen if the code phrase was said after all five sessions. So if one was missing, that meant the drop had been called off. Wow. So this meant that her and Dennis Rake spent a lot of time chained to radio sets listening for messages and code phrases. Yeah, absolutely. And also the group of Mackies that Nancy's now looking after, she's looking after this one group, is about to get a lot bigger. We know we talked about Gaspar, his group had come under attack from the Gestapo and her instincts were right. He wasn't a good leader, really. He concentrated too many of his men in one place. He had 3,000 of them. And because he was a bit of a blagger, he didn't know what he was doing. They planned no escape routes. They had no plan for where to go if they survived an ambush. So they held out and fought the Germans as much as they could, lost about 150 men. And eventually Gaspar gave the order 
for the men to scatter. Wow. And so the clever ones headed to Nancy's group. Right. <laughs> you know, sod this, I'm going where they seem to be a bit more organised. So now she finds that she's the only source of comms for 7,000 resistance fighters. Wow, so this person they originally thought was a useless woman with a handbag full of cash became the most powerful individual among them suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And by all accounts, she could drink most of them under the table too. Um, they used to try and sort of get her drunk so they could get money off her or whatever and it never worked. Uh, she was kept busy night after night with parachute drops. There would be 15 containers come from a plane and a drop and sometimes 15 planes a visit. So there's a lot of stuff to organise trucks and whatever, all in different parts of the country. She's busy. Yeah. And she'd be there to receive money when it arrived from London too, and she would go around and distribute it to the groups in the area. Yeah, exactly. So um, the Mackies for food, they would steal food and clothes and cars and fuel to keep them going. So that meant they started to get a bit of a bad rep amongst local farmers. Yeah. Um, so Nancy lays down a, a new rule, and the rule was that they were to offer a fair price for everything they needed. Right. Um, and if the price was accepted, they had to pay it. Right. But if the price wasn't accepted, then they could nick it. I'm going to do this. So you offer a price. <laughs> they say, no, that's not high enough. You go, well, now I'm going to nick it. And the other rule was collaborationists could be robbed and Germans should be robbed. Very good. <laughs> After... What happened to Gaspard's group as well, she made sure that all the groups in the area now had agreed escape plans and a designated rendezvous for people that got away so that wouldn't happen again. Right, so the Mackie were in control of these rural areas. As long as they kept off the main roads and out of towns, they were fine. Yeah. And this gave Nancy the confidence to travel around by car. Yeah, the Germans were in the cities and on the main roads. They didn't know the country roads no. and they stayed away from them really. Um, she would sometimes bump into German opposition, but usually managed to shoot her way out of it. And there were quite a few times when she had to do that. Wow. And now it's 1944, and on the 5th of June, she gets told a weapons instructor is being dropped that night, codename Anselm. She goes to meet him by car and bicycle to avoid German patrols. And it turned out to be René Dussac, an ex-Hollywood stuntman that she had trained with. He was a weapons expert and so became known as Bazooka. Bazooka. And by the time her and Bazooka return to the base, she gets told that the Allies have just landed at Normandy. It's now D-Day. D-Day is a fact, and it is time to put their plans into action. They've been given instructions for D-Day from London. Uh, the main instructions were telephone cables to destroy, vital demolitions like factories, a railway junction, and the Mackies had already got to it. By the time her and Bazooka got back, They'd rendered the steelworks useless, the cables were cut. The only thing they didn't destroy from the list was the petrol plant because they needed petrol. Right. Uh, they got deliveries of more weapons and Bazooka spent 10 days teaching them how to use them. Germans were amassing and attacking anything in the vicinity of the places the uh, Mackie had just destroyed. Yeah, Nancy's exhausted at this point. She's been sleeping two hours a day and she needed some rest for what was to come. So what she did, so like, okay, things are blowing up. So I'm going to go for a long bath in some hot springs. And then she took herself to bed for a long sleep in a handmade French nightie, which apparently she had two of them with her. And no matter what was going on around her, she slept in a handmade French nightie. You've got to have standards, John. I've got to have the face cream and the nightie. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you're fighting the Nazis. She was awoken by gunfire, immediately armed herself and went and joined the Mackie in the fight. She was hands-on when it came to the fighting Germans and she got stuck in, didn't she? She did. London then sent an order from the Free French leader that Gaspard's group should evacuate. So she drove on her own to go and give him the message, which is quite dangerous uh, yeah. at this point, lots of Germans in the area. And her car was attacked with machine gun fire from above. And I love this. There's lots of things that she did, but I love this story because she had no cover for her car. Yeah. Like She'd just gone off on her own to tell him the order. 
So she jumps in a ditch. The young Makisards around. So they jump in a ditch. And then they go to run away when she realises that in her car, she's left a saucepan, a jar of face cream, some tea and a red satin cushion. So she goes back for them. Of course, you have to. And the rest of the group are just laughing at her as she comes rolling down the hill with all her goodies, still being pursued by the Luftwaffe. Well, of course. I mean, standards. Standards, yes. Angela. She reminds me of my mum, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, really respected her, though. Um Tardivat said about her, she is the most feminine woman I know until the fighting starts. Then, and he kissed his fingers as only a Frenchman can. She is like five men. There was an incident when uh, her group came under fire once and she managed to get a message to Tardivat's group to ask them to attack from their position at the rear. And after that had happened, after that ambush, he said to her that when he got the message that came through, which said, come quickly, Madame André is in trouble, all the men stopped eating to oh. fight. And she said, Frenchmen stopped eating. <laughs> and he said, for you, yes, a special exception. <laughs> so they loved her. You know, yeah. It's amazing how well-respected she was in this environment. She's a woman. Yeah, you know? quite. And newer recruits would come along and try it on because they assumed she'd be soft. Yeah. There was a group of gendarmes who joined up quite late, joined the Mackies. Mm -hmm. And they thought, because they were gendarmes, that simple tasks like carrying water was a bit beneath them. Uh, so uh, she said to them, yes, you're right, I'll fetch the water for you. So she got her car, went to the lake, filled seven buckets with water, came back and with no expression on her face, poured them one by one over their heads and then sent them to get 10 buckets of water, which they did. <laughs> that would have torn them. Um, the Spanish Macizards offered to give her some protection as she did her rounds and arranged parachute drops, etc., but becoming our bodyguards, mm. they regarded her as a leader, but protected her as a woman. Yeah, I think she had a few close calls, so they yeah. sort of protected her. And she was busy all the time, like we said, with these parachute drops, having to have fields ready and manned and watched in case anyone came snooping around. They'd have to organise these trucks to carry the supplies away. It was a huge logistical undertaking. And once a month, amidst the arms and supplies, London would show their appreciation by dropping her personal parcels with sweets or lipstick and little <laughs> notes which were often rude, but they knew she'd love them. Yeah, and she did love them, you know. Uh, Nancy was also, she was an animal lover. She had um, a dog that she adored called Picon um, back home that she missed terribly. And uh, one night <laughs> she'd had a few drinks and there was this big storm and um, one of the American members of the group had a horse she felt a bit sorry for this horse in the rain. Yeah. And at this point, she's living in a bus, right? That's her right. quarters are a bus with a bathroom attached to the side. So she leads this horse. She's pissed. Yeah. She leads this horse to the bathroom. But the bathroom's got a galvanised roof and yeah. the noise of it freaks out the horse. So it starts panicking. Oh, no. So there's a window of the bus that goes into the bathroom. So she opens that as the horse is sticking its head into her bus for the bathroom. And she spends all night talking to it and stroking it. And eventually she falls asleep. And then, of course, his horse just gets agitated again and completely kicks down the bathroom and then bolts into the forest. Oh, no. And the next day, she organises search parties for the horse because she feels so bad, but they never find it. And that night, when the radio operator is asking her what phrase she wants to transmit to London for the BBC to, yeah. you know, to repeat back, she said, tell them to send the message, Andre has a horse in the bathroom. It's like, hello, hello. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> the Allies... Um, Landed in the south of France on the 15th of August, 1944. Things getting pretty bad for mm. Germany. Nancy was then able to display her pips. She carried the rank of captain and assumed her true ID. The Marquis accorded her all the privileges of her rank. Once the Allies come in, she can be British. Yes. Uh, and her fortitude is really put to the test then because they're still fighting 
obviously at this yeah. point. And um, there's an attack on a machine parts factory that she's part of. And she was in the first wave of the attack. And her job was, there were eight sentry guards. Yeah. And her job was to knock one of them out um, in the first wave. And then the second wave could go in right. and ransack or do whatever they were doing. And they do this march backwards and forwards. So the idea is they wait for them to march away and hit them from behind. Yeah. Which she goes to do, but he turns around and sees her. And of course, once he's seen her, yeah. that's dangerous. So she kills him with her bare hands in one of these manoeuvres she'd learned in training, the ones that she thought were dirty and violent. And she was really revolted that she'd had to do that. I mean, she'd shot Germans. Yes. But to kill one with her bare hands. Um, but she had to do it and she did. She knew she would. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so uh, the war is cracking on. Paris liberated on the 25th of August. And on the 30th of August, it was her birthday. Uh, the Marquis organised a massive party. Um, the Swiss ambassador invited her to a cocktail party the following day. Yeah, so she's quite se well celebrated. Um, it was at but, the party, though, the Swiss ambassador's party the next day, that she was given a message um, that sadly, Henri, her husband, was dead. He'd actually died in uh, 1943. She froze on the spot, obviously, and asked to be taken away. What had actually happened to Henri? So the Gestapo picked Henri up in their flat after Gestapo agent 47, Roger, who we mentioned before, had also betrayed him. He was driven to Gestapo HQ, imprisoned and brutalised. And after a few months, they sent his father in to try to persuade him to tell them where Nancy was. But he just said, Papa, leave me in peace. Right. And this treatment continued. They sent his father in again and he just asked him to leave and, and to look after Nancy. And he was finally executed on 16th of October, 1943. And that was while Nancy was still in training. Wow. She so, didn't find out until yeah, right at the much end. Much later. So Nancy asked to go to Marseille and they eventually bribed a ferryman when they saw all the bridges were down. Mm. She found her dog staying with friends and went to the bank to find their deposit boxes empty. Yes. She eventually returned to the chateau they'd been staying in. And by mid-September, the war was over, really. For the Mackies. Yeah. Uh, Nancy went to Paris for victory night. She spent it in the British Officers Club. So Nancy was rewarded for her war work. She was yeah. given the US Medal of Freedom and the French gave her three Croix de Guerre medals. Yeah, she was well rewarded. And the medal that meant most to her, though, was the resistance medal that she was given um, by the French because not many foreigners right. were given that. So that was really precious to her. After the war, she did a short stint in the passport office in Paris uh, and then in Prague, but she eventually decided she wanted to go home. So she got herself on a Norwegian ship for Sydney, told them she was a nurse, um, managed to blag that all the way back to Sydney, arriving in January 1949. Wow, amazing. She briefly went into politics in Australia, represented the Commonwealth Liberal Party, stood against the Labour. Oh, I was liking her <laughs> up to this point. She's just ruined it all. <laughs> <laughs> she stood against Labour and turned the seat into a marginal. But after that, in 1951, she returned to London, working as an intelligence officer in the air ministry. She remarried an RAF man and went back to Australia in the 60s. Yeah, they stayed in Australia. Uh, they had no children and they were there married for 40 years when her husband passed away. And she decided when she was on her own then that she wanted to go back to London. So she actually sold her medals. Right. Um, she felt they weren't really, you know, she had the memories, whatever, didn't yeah. need the medals. Sold them to fund a return to London in 2001, uh, where she became resident at Stafford Hotel in St. James's Place near Piccadilly. And I love, I just, I wish I'd known she'd been there. I yeah. would have gone and hung out in that bar and spoke to her. Because apparently in the mornings, 
She'd be found in the hotel bar, sipping her first gin and tonic of the day, telling her war stories. Yeah. How great would it have been to just go in there, buy her a gin and listen to what she had to say. Um, she was there for a couple of years and apparently the hotel owners sort of absorbed the cost of it because she was good value in the oh, hotel. Oh, wow, okay. You know? In 2003, she moved to the Royal Star and Garter home for disabled ex-servicemen and women, uh, which was in Richmond. And she stayed there till she died in uh, 2011. She was 98, wow. John. Wow. Yeah. Um, so a few stats to finish on. Yeah. Uh, of 560 SOE agents sent to Europe, 133 didn't come back. 50 women were sent and 39 of them, uh, like Nancy, were members of the first aid nursing yeomanry. 12 were murdered by the Nazis and one died in the field. Yeah. So, you know, she, um, brave. very brave what she did. When she was asked about her activities during the war afterwards, there's this lovely quote that she had to say about it. She said, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I did what I did. I hate wars and violence, but if they come, then I don't see why we women should just wave men a proud goodbye and then knit them balaclavas. <laughs> and the Spice Girls thought they were girl power. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening to We Are History. Please do remember, if you haven't already, that you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, links in the show notes. And also, you can now join our Patreon Members Club. Yes, you can. And actually, we'd like to take this moment to give a bit of a thank you to our brilliant Patreon supporters, because we couldn't do this without you, literally. I mean, we nearly yeah. had to stop. So thank you. A big thank you to Flo Saxby. Daphne Fanger. Mike Evans. Zacharias Farinen. I see how you left me to have the name that was hardest. <laughs> and Vivian H. Thank you, guys, for all yes. your support. You are it brilliant. It makes a big difference. And uh, other people... Uh, do join us. It's a fantastic club to be in, Angela. Yeah, to find out more about becoming part of the We Are History Patreon gang, access episodes ad-free and a week early, plus loads of merchandise, click on the link in our show notes. Thanks to everyone at Podmasters for looking after us. Give us a follow on Twitter, We Are History Pod, and also on Instagram, We Are History Pod. Yes, thank you to all at Podmasters for making us sound good, and we will see you next time. We're going to raise a glass to Nancy. Bye. Bye. Your History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production.